Okay. Uh, let me make a couple of book recommendations before we get started. Um, if you've heard me teach this class the few times I have, you know that I'm a fan of John Murray. And uh, if you've never, you'll see a, you'll see a picture that's on the screen in a minute or so. It's a different cover. This is an old, old, old copy because I'm an old, old guy and I've had it for a long time. But his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, is one of the best um, understandable theological works on the planet. Not all theological works are easily understandable. Some of them you have to really plow through. And they're worth plowing through, okay? I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing heavy theological works, but this one is, is readily understandable and, and right on the money when it comes to describing the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished and how that is applied to sinners. So, if, does anybody have this book? Shame on all the rest of you. <laughs> you guys get brownie points today. But don't hold your breath because you may not get any more. But this is just a really, really excellent book. And I'll quote from him just a little bit today. But I highly recommend that. And I don't even know if this is in print anymore. Um, this is the Westminster Standards. Anybody have any clue what that means? The Westminster Standards. Who's heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Okay. The larger catechism and the shorter catechism. This is all of them. All in one place. And uh, we'll quote from this a little bit later today. But such a handy volume to have both the larger and shorter catechisms and the confession and it's got a few other things that are peculiar to the to the Presbyterian Church, um, but it's it's worth its weight in gold if you've got the larger and shorter catechisms together with a confession of faith. The shorter catechism is um, hold on, 107 questions, and it was written in uh, 1647. And it was designed for children. Most grown-ups today have a hard time plowing through the shorter catechism. It just shows you where we've come. And um, but it's uh, but so worthwhile. Um, it's the famous catechism that begins with the question: What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then it goes on from there. It's just really, really, really worthwhile. So. Uh, just those quick book recommendations. Last week, um, Larry led us through uh, the lesson, chapter 28, in our book, uh, 50 Core Truths. He led us through chapter 28, which is on regeneration, which has to do, what does regeneration have to do with, class? Salvation. Pardon me? Salvation. More specifically. Effectual calling is connected. Being made alive. Regeneration is the infusion of new life into a dead corpse of a sinner. Okay? It has to do with the giving of life to dead sinners. Spiritually, we come into this world in what kind of shape? Dead. We're not sick. We're not wounded. We're not in trouble. 
well, we are in trouble, but we're dead. Absolutely dead. We're as dead as can be. We're deaf and blind and ignorant and lost and unable to change a thing about the way we are spiritually. We are no more capable of making a move toward God than a fence post. Last time, uh, when, when have you ever seen a fence post make its own move? Never? When have you seen a fence post draw a breath? When have, you, when have you seen a fence post? And you could use a hundred other illustrations, but when have you seen a fence post? Say, hey, would you straighten me up? I'm crooked. Never. We're as dead as a fence post. We're as incapable of calling upon Jesus all on our own as a fence post. But when God issues his effectual call, what does effectual mean? It's real simple. It sounds like effectual. It's effective. It really works. When God issues his effectual call, a call that actually accomplishes its purpose, a dead sinner becomes alive. That's regeneration. That call is what wakes the sinner up. And he has new life. That's regeneration. Understand, please, that effectual calling is not at all like when you call your kids to come for supper. What happens when you call your kids for supper? Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Most times. How many times do you have to call them before they actually come in? Johnny, supper. Come on in. Five minutes later. Johnny! It's time for supper. Another five minutes goes by. Johnny, get yourself in here right now. And he may come at that point or he may not. So how much power do your words have? I mean, real power. Now, I understand this is not a class on child discipline. You can train your kids to respond to your voice. I, I get that, okay? But an effectual call is not like you calling Johnny for supper. God's effectual call actually wakes the sinner up. It's not like Mama calling Johnny for supper. It's like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And when Jesus, Lazarus was dead. And he was already beginning to what? Stink. Yes, he was that. He was altogether dead. And his body was decomposing. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, life coursed into that body. That was an effectual call. And that's what happens. That's what regeneration is. God issues his effectual call to a thoroughly dead sinner. And that sinner wakes up and becomes alive. That is regeneration. Now, because regeneration is what it is, always effectual, always accomplishing its purpose, it's going to produce a result. Nine times out of ten. Ten times out of 10, every single time. 
Because regeneration is effectual, always accomplishing its purpose, it's going to produce a result every single time. And the result is what we call conversion. It cannot help but happen. I don't mean to make that sound like um, a robot or anything, but it's true. When God imparts life to a sinner, conversion is going to happen every time. It's the effect of the effectual call. And we call it conversion. Here's how John Murray puts it in his book, Accomplished, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. That's a newer cover, but the same book. He says, without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. That's how good the work of regeneration is. It secures its purpose. It accomplishes what God sent it to do. This is, this is not some theological construct we press down upon the Bible. It's what the Bible itself teaches. Let's look at some texts here. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who are the ones who believe on his name? Who are the ones who believe and receive? Believe on his name and receive him. Who are they? Use the language here. They were, they were those who were born of God. We're born is prior to believing. Notice the tenses Paul uses here. Or sorry, John. Notice the tenses John uses here. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born. What gives rise to belief? Birth. In this case, the new birth. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born is prior to believing, and that's what we call regeneration. Being born. Um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. You see that you see the relation of the tenses there. Everyone who believes in the original language, that's a present tense, everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. <laughs> No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I'm, I'm making another point. I'm sort, of, I'm sort of jumping ahead 
in what we're going to talk about conversion. Conversion is made up of repentance and faith. We'll come to that. But I'm showing you that both repentance and faith are preceded by regeneration. Okay? You can't repent, you can't believe, unless you've been born again. Unless God has imparted new life to you. So, no one born of God, and the tense, it's not reflected well in English, but the original language is no one who has been born of God, makes a practice of sinning. They're repenting. They're turning away from sin. They don't make a practice of sinning. That's repentance. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There it is. It's prior. It's prior to repentance. The new birth. Regeneration. Now, we haven't even described conversion yet and talked about what it is because I want to establish clearly at the outset that whatever it is, it is the fruit or the product of regeneration. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about conversion. The author of our book defines conversion this way. It is the human response to the gospel consisting of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's a pretty simple but accurate, uh, right on the money description of what conversion is. The human response to the gospel consisting of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before we talk specifically about repentance and faith, and we'll come to those, and we'll define them and, and, and break them down into some of their elements, I want to make some general observations about conversion itself and repentance and faith, and then we'll look specifically at those two elements. Conversion comes, where's Amy? I'll have to nail her later. Conversion comes from a Latin word, which means to turn around. A convert is somebody who has turned around and they're going the other direction. Conversion means to turn around. It's an accurate description of the two great turnings in the Bible. There are two major life events that are described turning in the Bible. One of them is turning from and the other is turning to. to. Um, this is Paul preaching at Lystra. Um, and he says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What's Paul, what's Paul preaching at Lystra for? For these people to turn from vain things to a living God. When Paul uh, in Acts 26 recounts what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus when Paul was converted, he's describing, he's recounting that encounter and part of what Jesus said to him was, in describing the ministry Paul's going to have, was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. These are, these are huge, massive events. 
turning from and turning to. And those turnings are what we call conversion. Uh, the Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse 9, First Thessalonians, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These texts are just under, underscoring the place of turning from sin and to God as the specific responses to the preaching of the gospel. And we call those turnings, turning from is repentance and turning to is faith. That's conversion. Let me make another observation here before we break down repentance and faith by themselves. Repentance and faith are what we do. <clears throat> Repentance and faith are what we do. Regeneration is what God does. Regeneration is God's activity. Repentance and faith are our activities. God doesn't believe for us. God doesn't repent for us. We do. God quickens us. He makes us alive so that we're able to repent and believe, but we must repent and believe. The necessity of repentance and faith on our part could not be stated any more strongly than it is in these couple of texts. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, what? you will all likewise perish. If you don't repent, what's going to happen? You're going to perish. Forever. Isn't that what that means? Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. John 8, that's Luke 13, 4 and 5. Uh, John 8, 24, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And we'll talk about what that means to believe that. Unless you believe, what's going to happen? You die in your sins. Could, could it be any plainer? Who is responsible to repent and believe? I am. You are. And if I don't repent and believe, I will die forever and be shut out from God. Ron? I thought the book put it really well. It said if regeneration and conversion are like two sides of a coin, regeneration is the divine work and conversion into human response. Now, Ron, don't be stealing my fire. <laughs> Pardon me. I'll, I'll consider that request. <laughs> absolutely, that's absolutely right. We'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Repentance and faith is my responsibility. It's what we do. But now we've, we've just jumped into the realm of mystery here. 
And if that hasn't dawned on you that we just jumped in the realm of mystery, then let me make it plain. Apart from regeneration, we cannot and we will not repent and believe. Ain't going to happen. And at the very same time, we are altogether responsible to repent and believe. We must or we will perish. Is there anything about that that goes like this in your mind? I hope there is. We're in the realm of mystery here. But if we take the language of Scripture seriously, then we must understand that the necessity of regeneration does not negate the responsibility to repent and believe. How on earth does that fit together? I haven't a clue. But is that okay? That there are some things in the Bible that we don't have a clue about? Yes, it's okay. Because if, if there was nothing, if I could figure out every last thing in this book and explain it in, in great detail so that there are no apparent conflicts, I would be God. And I ain't. And neither are you. There are some things that are just God's business. And if we're not okay with that, then we're not okay. Let God be God. And there are some things that he knows and he understands that I don't. And that is okay with me. Marie. That's because my mind is the whole fence post business. Yeah. So I just have to, I really struggle with that. Sometimes, you know, you just have to accept that, uh, think about it that way, that some people are always going to be a fence post. So there's nothing I can do about it. It's not in my power to go, who you are no longer a fence post. Yeah. And that's so that's God's it's, work. And it's heartbreaking. Sure. And then you take it down to that the simplicity is, is I love you and I'm sorry and you are always going to be a fence post. And I am no better because I have I should never be called. Right. I'm no better because or right. for a reason. I have nothing better to quote Alistair Beck. I mentioned that a dirty right and center myself. And I'm not worthy or deserving and I did nothing to earn or I just Nothing. There's nothing yeah. about me that was. I did nothing. I am. I am a fence post. Do you know? You remind me of a fence post. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that, that's the mystery. That's a mystery. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you know, and I just, I think I got before that. We just, you know. Yeah. I have to touch on that. Just being about before that mystery. Yeah, we do. We 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 have to bow before the mysteries. It's very humbling. Yes, it's humbling. But it's not fair. It's not fair. Time out. What's fair is for nobody to be shown mercy. It's not fair that God only changed some fence posts and not others. No, no, no. What's fair is for God to have nothing to do with any of us ever. It's a wonder. That God is at mercy on any. 
hey Dave, would you, would you, or, yeah, thank you. Cut that machine off. Patrick. It's helpful to remember, you know, the thief on the cross and that we don't know. Yeah, yeah. All will be effectively called. No. We don't know anybody's state of anybody's heart. All the way to the end. Yeah, yeah. So our job is to keep telling them. Absolutely, we don't we don't know who who the who the fence posts are that are going to someday not be a fence post, and who's going to staff it. We don't know, and so and so there is the and the Bible is so clear about this, um, and and Murray makes a great point of this in this chapter on conversion where he talks about the free offer of the gospel to all men indiscriminately. Because we don't know who is going to respond and who is not going to respond. Our responsibility is to put it out there in front of everybody. And God quickens who he will. Um, so while we're in the realm of mystery, let's remind ourselves that repentance and faith are both gifts of God. This deepens the mystery. We're responsible to repent and believe. We can't repent and believe until regeneration happens. But even when we do repent and believe... Where did those things come from? They're gifts of God. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's a gift. Does a gift have strings attached? Here, let me pay you. Christina, would you give me a really nice gift, please? I'll trade you my I'll trade you my pocket knife. <laughs> what just happened? It ceased to be a gift. It ceased to be a gift. Gifts are free. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That was after the conversion of Cornelius. An out-and-out -out Gentile, not a Jew, no right to the mercies of God. But what do they do? Okay, Cornelius was converted. Wow, God is giving you the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Did they say, not fair? Not fair because he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile dog. What did they say? They glorified God. They glorified God, saying God has given to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And we could all say this in our sleep, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. So, wow, how does, how does all that fit together? Apart from regeneration, we're dead and unable. Apart from the gracious gift of God, we're totally without the slightest hint of repentance and faith. And yet we must repent and believe. And unless you repent, you all likewise perish. If you don't believe, you die in your sins. How does that all... This side of heaven, we're not going to figure that out. Don't you feel like that sometimes? When you're, when you're looking at, at, at some of the mysteries of how it all works? 
And instead of our saying, why did God have to make it so difficult? We ought to be saying how incredibly kind and gracious of God that he gives those precious gifts of repentance and faith at all. They glorified God that he granted to Gentiles the gift of repentance. He doesn't owe them to anyone. He doesn't owe regeneration to anybody. And yet he gives it to multitudes. So what's our response? I don't get it, God. It's not fair. No, 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 no. What's our response? Worship. That God is so kind and full of mercy. All right. uh, Two more general observations before we talk about repentance and faith themselves. Man, that's still hot. And that was like an hour ago. Davis County Teachers Federal Credit Union has the best insulated cups. Go to an account at the credit union. And where's Alicia? Joe? Tell her I gave her a plug, all right? This was indeed a free gift. Now, Paul, who invited you here this morning? Okay, yeah, you do have to have an account there, but I bet you, I bet you, if I go see Alicia tomorrow, she'll give me one of these for you. So you're betting, man? No. I'm sorry, I'll trade. Is there anything else you'd like to contribute? That is good. All right, y'all, be careful what you say. Okay? He'll catch you on it. Okay, two more general observations. Um, Repentance and faith always go together. Ron? Oh, he just left. Repentance and faith always go together. Where you find one, you'll always find the other, like two sides of the same coin. I'm not talking about where they're mentioned in the Bible. You don't always find repentance and faith in the same verse in the Bible. But I'm talking about in, in, our, in our experience, in the experience of the believer. If you have genuine faith, you'll also have genuine repentance. If you have genuine repentance, you'll also have genuine faith. So, that's the front of a quarter. It was easier to use an older quarter for this illustration because the backs of the new quarters are all different, okay? So, that's the front of a quarter. If that shows up on the back, that's not a real quarter. You know, that's the kind of quarter you need when you're flipping for whatever and you say, I'll call it heads. And it always lands heads. But that's not a real quarter. Okay? You've got to have that on the front and you've got to have that on the back and that's a real quarter. And where you have one, you always have the other unless it's counterfeit. Unless it's not real. Unless it's not genuine. So... That's a false quarter. That's a genuine quarter. Okay, now, if you got faith on one side and faith on the other side, it ain't the real thing. 
If all you've got is faith and no repentance, then your faith is not genuine. If all you've got is repentance and no faith, then that ain't genuine either. Neither one of them are real. You've got to have faith. And wherever you have real faith, you will also have, sorry, you'll also have real repentance. They go together. Okay? Um, you may have more of one than another at any given time. There may be seasons in your life where repentance is really predominant. But it will never be alone. You may have seasons in your life where faith is more predominant. But it will never be alone. But you see how impossible it is to have one without the other. Think about it. If it's a pattern of life, we are not fighting against sin and striving to turn away from it. What does that say about our faith? If we're, not, if we're not repenting, if we're okay with sin as a pattern of life, okay, there are moments when every single one of us is okay with sin. Right? Because we sin. And it was okay with us at that point. But as a pattern of life, if we're okay with sin and it doesn't bother us and, and we don't feel guilty over it and we're not turning from it and we're not trying to put it to death, as a pattern of life, what does that say about my trust in Jesus? Because Jesus came to save us from our sins. And if all I'm ever doing is beating myself up, beating myself to death over, over sin, and I'm constantly turning and, and trying to get rid of it, and, but there's no clinging to Jesus, and there's no hope of forgiveness. What is that? Is that real repentance? No. It might be more like penance. But you see, they always go together. It's impossible to have one without the other. And so God has wisely ordered that they all Go together, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay? Um, let's, let's, uh, let's look at that from a little different angle. That these eyes go together. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Without faith, what's going to happen? Die in your sins. Without what? Without faith, you die in your sins. Are you, you got that? Without faith, you die in your sins I tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish without repentance you will perish they go together don't they 
You see it? Without faith, you die in your sins. Without repentance, you die in your sins. You perish. See? Here, let, me, let, me, let me highlight it for you. Unless you believe, unless you repent. Unless you believe, unless you repent. You'll die in your sins, you'll likewise perish. They go together. Um, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins. Wait, 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 wait. I thought it said, if you believe in him, you receive forgiveness. And here it says, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. So what is it? Do you get forgiveness by believing or do you get forgiveness by repenting? What's the answer, class? Yes. yes. The answer is yes. Because where there's repentance, there's faith. Okay. One last observation, and then we're going to talk about repentance and faith. There are ongoing activities in every believer's life. The words in the original language for both repent and believe are in the present tense, which indicates an ongoing activity, not a one-time event. We don't repent and believe when we first come to Christ, and that's the end of repentance and believing. How many of us have had to repent already today? Are we still believing today? What does it say about all the um, heroes of faith in Hebrews 11? Toward the end of that chapter. I don't remember the exact verse. But it says, These all were still living by faith when they died. We believe every day. We repent every day. These are ongoing activities in the Christian's life. As long as we have breath, we'll need to repent and believe. Okay, now let's look at repentance and faith one at a time. Um, I'm going to quote now from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. This is old language, okay, 1647. We got it? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That was a, originally a children's catechism, remember? <laughs> So, children, here we are. That is a really good definition of repentance. That covers the ground. Okay, that's about as good a definition as you'll find. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, which just means God gives it to us, okay? Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, something must register in the consciousness of the sinner in order for him to repent. Actually, a couple of things. The first is a true sense of his sin. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What led them to say that? What did, G what did Peter just get finished doing? Nailing them to the wall about their guilt in crucifying Jesus. Go back and read Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, you crucified. Deer in the headlights. Something suddenly registered in their conscience. They were guilty of the death of Christ. For the first time, they had what? A true sense of their sin. And so what did Peter tell them? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They saw their sins for what they really were and were suddenly desperate to know what they should do in light of their sins. Out of a true sense of our sins. We turn from it. So, so the sense of their sin hit them and Peter said, turn, repent. Means we say our sins for what they really are and for what they actually did. Their transgressions of God's law, they're an offense to him. They nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. He hung there under the weight of the wrath of God for not his sins. He had none, but for ours. And when we see that, when, when we see that, we begin to hate them, our sins, because we see them for what they really are. We begin to hate them. It doesn't mean we hate them perfectly. We begin to hate them. We hate them enough to turn from them. We hate them enough to want to be rid of them. We hate them enough so that we're tired of them. And over the course of our Christian lives, this true sense of our sins will grow. We'll see them even more clearly and hate them all the more. Sometimes we'll feel the need to repent of our repentance because we see how poor our repentance is. And hopefully our repentance will grow. And it will become deeper and stronger and will turn more quickly and more thoroughly away from our sins. But do not despise the day of small things. Repentance will grow and mature, but it starts with this true sense of our sin. Will we ever turn from something we love? Will we ever forsake what we embrace? So what do we need? A true sense of our sin. God gives us that in increasing measure as we grow. What we once loved, we now hate.
Repentance is sorrow for and a change of mind about sin. Don't you see, don't you see sin differently now than you did before you were converted? <laughs> we have to. We loved it. We gave ourselves to it. And that has changed. I think differently about my sins. I'm sorry for them. Am I as sorry as I ought to be? I'm sure not. But, I, but I, do I turn as quickly and as radically as I should? I'm sure not. But repentance grows. And if it's enough to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, then repentance is doing its work. So there's a change of mind about and sorrow for our sins. Paul talks about sorrow at length in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of repentance is sorrow for the sin itself. It is not sorrow that we got caught. That's not hard. What, what guy in, in the state pen has not been sorry that he got caught? Man, I'm so glad I got nailed and I got life in prison. Hot dog. No, he's sorry he got caught. It's not merely sorrow for getting in trouble. It's not sorrow for making a mess of things. And sometimes... I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be sorry that we're in trouble or that we made a mess of things. That's true. But there's a deeper level of sorrow that's sorrow for the sin itself because it's an offense to God. And it was part of what nailed Jesus to the cross. My sin set apart in that. The other thing we must have if repentance is to be, a, is to be genuine is an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. <coughs> um, <coughs> repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. What in the world is that talking about? If the only thing we see is the horror of our sin and God's attitude toward our sin, what would make us run to him? If all we ever see is how angry God is over our sin, why would we go to him? It's, it's like running into a buzzsaw, if that's all we see. We'd be much more likely to run away from him, unless we see that there's mercy to be had because Jesus has died. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
the wrath of God against sin is not all there is to God. Hot dog. There is mercy. And for repentance to do its work, there must not only be a true sense of our sin, but an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And when those things come, the repenter doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. You see that in the prodigal son. Was he sorry? Yeah. Was he sorry that when he was living in such a mess? Oh, yeah, of course he was. Was he sorry that he didn't have all the privileges of living in his father? Yes, of course he was. What did he say? What did he rehearse that he was going to say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He was sorry that he sinned. Not just for the mess. Not just for what he missed. But for the sin. And he turned from it. And he got up out of his sin and he returned to his father. And there had to be something of that apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ in this story because he came to his father and what was his father doing? He was watching for him to come home. And when he saw him way down the road, he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and embraced him. Whoa. What did we do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. And so with grief and hatred of his sin, he turns from it to God. And the last part of the definition, with full purpose of it and never after new obedience. This is what we call the fruit of repentance. It's the outward evidence of inward grace. It's what repentance produces in us. Let me catch up here. with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Uh, John the Baptist exhorted the Pharisees and Sadducees to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, repentance is not just a nice idea. It's not just a mental state. It's not something that takes place only as a secret place of our hearts, although it does take place there. It comes to fruition in our lives. It produces changes. Some changes are more radical than others. Some are more subtle. If you've lived for years in, in blatant rebellion against God, the changes are going to be more radical and obvious in you. If you grew up in a Christian home and have been relatively protected from tons of garbage, the changes will be more subtle. But changes will come. That's the nature of repentance. But that's only part of the story. The other side of repentance is faith. And we understand this. For by grace you are saved through Faith, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, that's faith, in him should not perish. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But what is saving faith? Most theologians, and I think accurately so, break faith down into three parts. It, it consists of knowledge, conviction, and trust. Faith is part of... Knowledge. 
Faith is not some sort of mystical, subjective feeling that we can't really define. It's not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. Popular expressions. Faith is not blind. Faith has its eyes wide open. And what we see is who Jesus is and why He is so worthy of our trust. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Critical to faith is the objective content of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what He did in His life, death, and resurrection for guilty sinners. We have to know that. That has to register. Okay? Faith is a response to that. To what we know about who Jesus is and what he did. Oh, just have faith. All you got to do is believe. Believe what? Believe whom? There's objective content to faith. Faith is also conviction. It's possible to know the facts of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and care nothing about them. Prisons are full of people who can give you the facts of the gospel and they don't care a lick. Churches are full of people who can give you the facts of the gospel, but they don't care a lick. Makes no difference in their lives. But genuine faith not only knows the facts of the gospel, but it is persuaded and convinced that they're altogether true and perfectly suited to the sinner's guilt, misery, and ill desert. Conviction is part of faith. This is true for me. And the last element is trust. We exchange reliance upon ourselves for reliance upon Jesus alone. We rest upon him. We lay hold of him as our only hope. We trust ourselves to him. We cast ourselves on him. We look to him for rescue. Trust. We, we, we know. We've come to know who he is and who we are. We understand the implications of that. We're persuaded that it's true. And we cast ourselves on him to do what he said he would do for us. And here's the beauty of it. Last statement. It's not our faith that saves us. What? I, saw, I thought you spent the last hour trying to tell us, yes, it was. No, it's not our faith that saves us. And we should be really glad about that because there are days when our faith is pretty puny and sometimes almost non-existent and often wavering and sometimes weak, but even the most faltering, weak, puny faith puts us in touch with Jesus who does the saving without fail. And aren't we glad that it's Jesus who saves us and not our faith? There are such things as false and temporary faith, parable of the sower, faith that works is dead. But conversion is real contact with Jesus. And it makes a difference in how we live. It's repentance and faith turning from and turning to the only one who can save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are full of mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the only adequate, sufficient, altogether sufficient Savior. Thank you for the gifts of repentance and faith. May we be faithful to exercise them. 
May we be quick to repent. May we be quick to trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.